My name is Leslie Rose. And I'm Gerardo Manrique de Lara. And today we're talking about the African collection at Yale Library. As students of African studies, we rely on materials and resources that universities possess. American university libraries have some of the largest collections of African books and archival materials in the world. However, we often neglect to interrogate how these collections are formed and preserved. We believe researchers and students of African studies must reckon with the, how these collections came to be and what their responsibility is toward them. To explore these questions, we had two separate conversations with Roberta Doherty, the current librarian of African studies and Middle East studies at Yale, and her predecessor, Dorothy Woodson, who has written on the collection's history. Roberta, could you please tell us about yourself? My name is uh, Roberta Daugherty, and I like everybody to call me Robin. And I have been, uh, I'm actually, as a, a Middle East Studies librarian, I've been a Middle East Studies librarian for 28 years. And I've worked at several very large research institutions, University of Pennsylvania, um, Library of Congress, the Bodleian Library, um, uh, University of Texas at Austin, and then I came here. I've lived in Egypt for seven plus years. I lived in the Emirates for a little while. Um, so I, you know, my whole background really is Middle East studies. So coming to African studies, these boundaries that we place in our area studies worlds are definitely artificial. Dorothy, can you tell us about your experience as an African studies librarian? Well, I um, I came to Yale in 2000, the year 2000, from the SUNY State University of New York at Buffalo, where I was the social sciences bibliographer and the bibliographer for all the different area of studies. I mean, they didn't have major programs like Yale does, but... By bibliographer, I mean selector and reference librarian and so forth. And I had been there for uh, quite a while, 20 years. But my background and my interest was always in African studies. To start, could you please tell us about the origins and history of the library's African collections? As you may know, the the, uh, Divinity School was the start of the of Yale, uh, Yale's library collections, and um, instigated by the the training uh, training of missionaries, naturally, and these missionaries had to often learn languages in order to do their work <laughs> uh, in Africa or wherever they were, and so naturally, an outgrowth of the Divinity School was the uh, study of languages and then materials needed to be collected in order to, you know, study those languages. And so grammars and Bibles and portions of Bibles and dictionaries and things of that sort um, were collected at a very early date. We're talking about, you know, 1700s, 1800s. And um, so, you know, that's how things started. Here at Yale, we have had an African studies librarian since 1963. And I, I believe that that corresponds very closely to the beginnings of this thing called African studies in the U.S. Um, you know, it's a Cold War 
era kind of activity, this notion that American research libraries really needed to build research collections in um, le- you know, lesser known parts of the world. And I'm using air quotes um, for lesser known because, of course, they know themselves very well, but we just didn't. So we were the ones who did not. So African studies uh, shares many points in common with the development of Middle East studies and other area studies programs where there was this perception that Americans did not know what are called strategic languages, um, that uh, universities were not promoting research in strategic issues. Unfortunately, the, the roots of all this come back to um, political and diplomatic exigencies. However, fortunately, um, there is far more work to do and far more of great interest to study than just what diplomats and politicians care about. There's, you know, language and and the entire creative expression of people, as well as their history, as well as their economics and their uh, governmental policies. So in any case, so African studies comes out of this background similar to Middle East studies. After it became a necessity for the U.S. to invest in area studies, how did libraries transform these political interests into vast collections? One of the biggest problems, of course, in establishing an African studies collection is like, how are you going to get the books? The the Library of Congress, it's a long story, um, it has to do with U.S. exports of wheat to developing countries that did not have hard currency to pay for the wheat, and so the exchange was made for books. The weight of the wheat for books. The Congressional legislation was called PL 480, so that stands for Public Law 480. And if you just search in your favorite database, uh, search engine, PL 480 books libraries, um, you'll find some very interesting histories of uh, the PL 480 program and how it, it came to be. So in this manner, uh, American libraries were provided with books literally by the ton from countries where it was difficult otherwise to make uh, purchases of books. As I say, India was was one of the largest of these programs. Middle Eastern countries were certainly involved and and African countries too. So the the Library of Congress field offices were set up with uh, Library of Congress trained staff um, who went out um, and of course, you can imagine, like if you're in Nairobi, well, to get African publications, you have to go far. <laughs> you have to go way far away from Nairobi. Um, so they they either traveled themselves or they worked with book publishers and bookstores in other countries in order to create basically a funnel of publications through these field offices that would then be shipped to U.S. libraries. It was quite comprehensive. Originally, it was sort of like, give me everything you got. They were certainly interested in um, government publications, you know, anything that would have census reports, um, economic reports, this kind of thing, bank reports, but also literature, um, you know, who were the, the most important authors that were being published at the time, uh, anything about local history, anything about, you know, uh, minority groups in a particular country, religious minorities, ethnic minorities, uh, linguistic minorities, anything about language itself. It, you know, originally it was sort of like, let's just, just go and get as much as we can. So after this initial phase, how did the Yale Library refine its acquisition process to cater to the needs of its scholarly community? Well, um, when I uh, when I got to Yale was already a well-established one of the top um, library collections in terms of sub-Saharan Africa in the country, if not the world. 
at, at the time I arrived, we had an extremely generous budget. It was in the vicinity of $220,000, which allowed for the purchase of books, serials, by that I mean journals, you know, things that come out on a continuing basis, journal, uh, journals, magazines, newspapers, archival materials. And the unusual thing about Yale's library collection in those days, the budget anyway, is that it was for materials printed and published in Africa, in sub-Saharan Africa, not items published in North America or Europe or anywhere else in the world about Africa, but items deriving from sub-Saharan Africa. So that is really, that was a very magnificent budget. And it enabled us to acquire not just, um, you know, a great number of books and so forth, but ephemera, you know, archival collections. And uh, that doesn't exist anymore, sadly. The budget now has been reduced to only about $70,000. Following up, during your time as a librarian, what were your priorities when adding new materials to the collection and the challenges of these process? Well, it depends on what category of material you're talking about. For instance, if you're offered a collection of, say, postcards from the early 1900s that a Belgian photographer took in Central Africa, you're offered this big collection. Well, you, if you have the funds and it fits within the, your collecting interest, you scoop it up, right? Before another university scoops it up. One, one thing I was collecting, an example would be a propaganda, Italian propaganda material relating to the Ethiopian wars, their wars in Ethiopia. But how we select, well, it depends on what you're, you, you pitch to your strengths, obviously. And then after you pitch to your strengths, you pitch to your weaknesses. You know, if there's a big gap in something, some area, and there's particular attention being paid to that particular area by uh, researchers, then, you know, then that sort of, that might influence you to make that particular purchase. The critical thing, especially for materials published, um, you know, in Africa, in the Middle East, in India, in China, Japan, the print runs for these titles are very small. And the whole print publishing industry is structured very differently from what we are accustomed to. One of the biggest problems is... um, distribution of printed publications is just not very well organized um, outside of Europe and and North America. Um, It's very common for authors to engage in something that we would call self-publishing or vanity publishing. It's very common. A person writes a book, you know, their work of their collection of poetry, their novel or their, their history of a particular time period of their country. 
and they'll take their manuscript themselves, you know, down the street to the guy who's got a print shop. And that guy will print, you know, 1000 copies for this fellow. And then the guy takes it home. He takes it home and he gives some to his friends, or he may take, you know, some to the, the nearest bookstore and ask the book seller, will you buy some of my copies of my book? But there's like no, uh, or, or very little centralized way to get books. That is the role of the area studies librarians at Yale, for instance, is to collect materials published or printed on the continent, not published in Europe or elsewhere. Getting to the business of African languages, indigenous, and we're talking, you know, there's what, 800 to 1,200 languages in Africa, maybe a, a quarter to a third of the world's languages are in Africa, and they're spoken, spoken by very few, in some cases, very few people. Nevertheless, anything published, anything printed, not, not necessarily published, but printed in those languages and in those scripts, because, of course, many of those languages are not in our Roman or Latin script or Arabic script. It's important to collect the few items that uh, do exist in some of these languages, which are spoken by so few people. And um, there was a time when library higher-ups would uh, sort of eschew, you know, the collecting of some little primer on who knows what, uh, on raising chickens, you know, in, <laughs> in some... Um, obscure indigenous African language. But, you know, we would, I would always argue if we don't have that publication and chances are the country or the place it came from doesn't have it either because, you know, a lot of African countries don't have great um, histories of collecting materials uh, for legitimate reasons, uh, we may have, this could be the only copy available, you know, and it's important to keep it. What if the language dies out and there are no people speaking it any longer? Well, at least we have a written example of the language and perhaps somehow, you know, that that little pamphlet will help, you know, revive a language. Sounds very highfalutin, doesn't it? So this brings us to the question of preservation. These materials seem very important and rare. What are the efforts the library takes to keep them safe? So when we first acquire, like the majority of the material acquired um, for the African collection, Middle Eastern collection, all the other area studies collections here are current imprints. So when we first, when it first comes into the building, the book is brand new and it's in the best possible condition. And it could be several decades before somebody like you says, oh, wow, I need to check this book out. Now, um, and this is very common for us. Uh, our, our collections are typically low circulation, um, mostly because of the languages that they are in, that, you know, there are very few readers of these languages that are, you know, um, 
uh, students uh, doing research or faculty doing doing research here. So compared to Western language collections at Yale, our, the area studies collections tend, tend to be very low circulation. So in a sense, that's good for the materials because they're not being handled. Oftentimes the paper that's produced um, in uh, in countries in Africa and in countries in the Middle East um, has a very high acid content. Once the paper goes brittle, you can't do anything about it. There's no way to rescue it. The only thing that you can do is reformat it or see if you can buy a new copy. What about rare books or colonial documents? Sometimes we have to take out books from the library, from the shelf, such as very old colonial records. And you see it's kind of folding apart and held together in a folder or some sort of contraption. How does the library decide what gets to circulate and what doesn't, and how to take care of its more fragile documents? The African collection does not have a space in the rare books library. So that's the that's the thing. First off, it's not practical. Um, second off, well, that's really it. It's, it's just not practical. And um, everybody would get mad if they could no longer circulate these fabulous books that you're finding that you just described, you know, this wonderful treasure that you found that you were able to take home with you and use for your research. Under normal circumstances, you would go to the stacks. You know, you, you've, you figured out, you know, you've got the call number, you go to the stacks, you get your book, take it, you take it down to self-checkout, you check it out yourself and you say, gee, this book is brittle. Gee, you know, the cover seems to be coming off, you know. Well, anyway, I'll take it home, I'll use it and then you bring it back. So this is where the human intervention comes in and where some judgment comes into play because there was no human intervention in you getting the book off the shelf or in checking it out. When you return it, there are human beings who have to handle the books again and at that point, that's when we make a preservation assessment. You, you know, again, we can't preserve everything. You know, we have 15 million books in the collection. I was up on the very highest level of the um, library stacks, and I don't remember exactly what I was looking for, but as you said, there are these boxes with little folders and odd pieces of newspaper and things in them. I pulled it off the shelf, and in there was a little note, handwritten note on an envelope, the back of an envelope, written by Cecil Rhodes to his banker, <laughs> to his banker in London, asking about some account. I mean, you know, it was probably, I mean, it wasn't earth shattering, nothing anybody could probably ever use in, um, in, in research. But there it is sitting on the open shelves. So what you do is you take it off. <laughs> And you bring it to somebody, like a librarian, right? You bring it to Robin or whoever is doing the work, and you say, you know, do you really want this on the shelf? And if if the person says, no, that belongs in the manuscripts and archives, and then, you know, we sent it down there. I checked out a book that was in the general stacks that was printed in 1632. Nobody had noticed it. Everything before 1800 was supposed to go off to the Beinecke, but somebody missed this one. And so I checked it out, and it was an early, uh, an early imprint. It was early um, Arabic typography, and I was really interested in that, you know, the, the early uh, example of Arabic script in print, published in 1632 in the Netherlands, and I had it in my house. When I had had my fun, I, I did finally um, turn it over and to the proper caretakers. But, you know, um, uh, you can rest assured that I took good care of it while I had it. Robin and Dorothy both took expert care of the extraordinary materials they found in the open stacks. However, anyone could have stumbled upon them, checked them out, and taken them home. 
Imagine if someone who didn't recognize their importance or rarity had found them instead. The autograph of Cecil Rhodes or the early example of Arabic script could have been damaged or lost. This speaks to the immense responsibility libraries, scholars, and students have towards African collections. So what are our responsibilities towards materials and how can users help protect these things? We don't basically like go through the stacks proactively looking for the problem books because we would basically we'd have to pull we'd have to pull a lot of material out of the stacks as long as it's sitting quietly in the stacks you know in the cold storage nothing's happening to it it's not deteriorating um, when you bring it back when you've checked it out and you bring it back to circulation then as I say a human being says hmm this little book looks like it could use some help and then it, there's a whole policy about how to deal with the book whether to send it to uh, storage and it would be shrink wrapped in that case which would really help preserve it from um, you know and uh, being impacted by the environment um, whether to reformat it um, you know, to digitize it or microfilm it or to try to find a digital copy that we can purchase or to purchase a new copy. Um, you know, there's a whole uh, decision tree about what happens to one of these books when they come back if they are damaged. You know, if it's fragile, falling apart, you don't want people rifling through and looking at all this stuff. Then you have to decide to do something with it, either to digitize it or in the case of newspapers, it's just a heck of a lot easier to film, you know, make microfilm out of them. And, you know, that's it's cheaper. It lasts for decades and decades. And at some other date, it can be moved into a different format. A uh, former professor at Yale, Ann Bierstecker, who went from Yale to uh, Michigan State around 2015 or so, she and I and a Kenyan professor uh, collected the archives of a, a Kenyan publisher and dissident who was uh, jailed during the Mau Mau period and won um, uh, he's he won awards for his his work on um, the Mau Mau uh, rebellion and uh, so we have um, digitized his archives, which we brought back from Kenya. They're very large. Um, oh gosh, there's, there's just collections, magnificent collections from, from throughout Africa. Perfect. Well, um, thank you so much for answering our questions and giving us your time. This was very illuminating and interesting. I, I enjoy, I love my job very much. And I hope that one of the outcomes of this podcast will be to encourage somebody to pursue librarianship as a career. Academic librarianship is a fantastic career. This has been Afrofiles. Thanks for listening. I'm Leslie. And I'm Gerardo. And this episode was produced by us. Our editor is Ed Hendrickson. And our theme music is from Risen.